smoking cigarettes and drinking Red Bulls. Finally, they started matriculating actually into the meeting. A couple of people got into the meeting. They started getting sober, and pretty soon they started sponsoring each other. About five or six years ago, there was a young guy taking a birthday cake for one year, and he's 15 years old. And when you take a cake there, you got to stand up at the end of the room. We all sit in a kind of a circle. There's several different rows in there. So you got to stand up at the head of the room, which could be very intimidating because we are judging. Let's <laughs> 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 be clear on this. And, uh, and this kid stands up there, and he's about that tall. He's not done growing. He's three feet tall. He's 15 years old. And, uh, and he takes his cake, and he gave the most right-wing death squad AA pitch I've ever heard. <laughs> at the end of it, he's standing up there, and he's yelling. He's pointing his finger at everybody. He goes, if you're sitting out there, you don't have a sponsor. You're not working the steps. May God have mercy on your soul. <laughs> now, after all the old farts left and started their politically correct meeting, um, every Monday night there's 100 guys in that room, and I'll bet you 50% of the room is under the age of 24 years old. Mm-hmm. We've got well, the last old guy is secretary now, and he's only in his 40s. So you know the next secretary is going to be one of these punks. Because <laughs> they're all five, six, seven, eight, nine years sober now. It's not saying they're, are they peers? Are they equals? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll tell you something. When you're sponsoring these guys, when you're sitting across the table from them reading the book, the age difference goes away. It's amazing. I mean, it literally goes away because you're not talking about that. Mm-hmm. You're not talking about what we used to do when we were kids and stuff. It is, that isn't what the conversation's about. And every once in a while, they want you to meet their parents. <laughs> and I get nervous. <laughs> like I'm 20 years old and I'm going to go meet her parents. <laughs> I get nervous like that and they show up and they're young enough to be my kids. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you need to hang on to me long. 
long enough till you find somebody that you really need to be with. I have no idea how I'm going to be used in this fellowship. I'm powerless. Um, my story is I was a surfer and a biker and a tough guy. And I never went to the beach. My <laughs> <laughs> motorcycle rarely ran. And I was afraid to fight. <laughs> but I looked really good. I had a little Nazi helmet for a hat and a primary chain for a belt, black greasy Levi's and big black boots with chains around them. I've got tattoos all over me. I had a clip on earrings because I didn't want to hurt myself. By the time I was 17 years old, I was a bad drunk in high school. I started drinking when I was 15 or so. By 17, within a couple of years, I was down the drain. I'd already been to jail. And I had the big jacket and the slouch and the sneer and the bad attitude and the foul mouth and a little gun in my back pocket. And I was, you could not communicate with me. I was gone at 17. You know, all of us tell the same story. All, all of us tell the same story. We use different ways of describing it, but we talk about how long before we ever drank and used, we didn't feel part of. We felt separate from. We felt less than. You know, somebody, you guys all had the rule book and I didn't have one. The aliens dropped me off. We're waiting for the mothership to return. <laughs> you know, we have different ways of describing this disconnect. And we talk about it like it's some kind of unique experience, like only alcoholics feel that way. I think every kid feels that way. It's part of the growing up process. Every kid, if you ever had the experience of raising teenagers, every kid, if they reach that point where they're gawky and gangly and they got zits and they can't talk to girls and they're all weirded out, you've got all the power and they don't, and they don't like that, and they start pushing against you, and you don't understand, and it's probably true, we probably don't understand, and... and uh, Every kid goes through that. The difference between us and them is that we medicated that feeling and we never grew out of it. So when we get here to Alcoholics Anonymous, whatever age we are, we're that kid. I was 37 years old when I got here and on a good day, I had the emotional development of a 16-year-old and this kid was not an honor student. <laughs> he was not the one that was mature beyond his years. This was the kid that had a bit of a problem with authority. You know, that kid. The troubled one. And uh, usually when we're describing this thing about how we didn't feel part of, how we were disconnected, somewhere in this description we use the term, a lot of us, alcoholic thinking. I had alcoholic thinking. Long before I ever drank, I had alcoholic thinking. Or I had the ism long before I ever drank. We use that kind of description. Alcoholic thinking, if you say it often enough, it just becomes true. We just accept it like it's, we have special thinking. I mean, Silverworth wrote a paper on it in 1940. You can imagine him sitting in the early AA meetings. He hears that term, and he goes, oh God, they're making stuff up now. <laughs> Nowhere, you don't hear that term alcoholic thinking anywhere else except in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know what the professional community says about us? They say that we are emotionally immature. <laughs> we hear that and we go, 
No. <laughs> I, have, I have special thinking. I have alcoholic thinking and it's never going away. And you need to consider that when you're dealing with me. Special thinking. I'm convinced we're emotionally immature. I think that literally true. I think that's the, the crux of our problem in sobriety, as we're recovering, what we have to deal with. We treat it like we have all these deep, profound, neurotic problems. You know, the, the truth is the depth of our shallowness knows no bounds. <laughs> There's really nothing there. <laughs> People don't believe that. It's not me there. Look how old he is. <laughs>
we lost a house and several cars and a bunch of jobs. And it was awful. It was just awful. Anybody else here been in a mountain institution? Oh, come on. <laughs> That's good. There's a bunch of you out there going, well, it really wasn't an institution. <laughs> <laughs> they were just observing me. <laughs>
if I've never <laughs> been connected. I don't know what connected feels like. I don't know that what I'm doing is I'm just reacting to how you feel impacts me. I don't know that I don't have any compassion. I don't know that I can't feel you in my life. I can't, I don't connect with you. Really, at all. I need to have you around because I have needs that need to be met. You know, somebody has to cook. <laughs> and it helps to have someone else to have sex with, although it's really not mandatory. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to have kids, somebody has to actually raise them because I'm not going to <laughs> <laughs> I don't know any of this. This is all hindsight. I don't know that it's that bad. At 37, there was no more drugs in my life. There was no more rock and roll. There was no more party. There were no more Harleys. You weren't looking cool. We were a mess. I weighed well over 300 pounds. My, I had a pitched nerve in my right shoulder because the muscles in my upper body had atrophy. My arm was curled up against my side. I got a political argument in a second-story bar and they threw me out of the place. This is another thing, another indicator of alcoholism is when you're correct and in the hospital. <laughs> I shattered my ankle. I got pins and screws in my ankle. I walked with a pronounced lip. And I, I think I just felt death coming up behind me. I think what happens to most of us when we get sober is we just fall over from the sheer exhaustion of the lifestyle. Some of us die. Lots of us die. Some of us just fall over and we raise the flag. So on this particular day, in March of 1985, like any good gangster, I called my mom. <laughs> <laughs> She's an Al-Anon, they're very efficient. <laughs> Ready? She came over and got me really quick before I changed my mind because you and I know that a half hour, 45 minute nap, everything changed. <laughs> we wouldn't want to rush into anything. And, uh, she came and got me, she checked me into a place in Costa Mesa, California called Starting Point. Uh, I spent 35 days in this place. I couldn't imagine just going to AA and not drinking, even though I'd been around AA for a long time. I grew up in meetings. And, uh, but I just couldn't imagine doing it. I need, I need to be hospitalized. I need medication, therapy. And, uh, my parents took me to my first shrink when I was 13 years old because I had rage. Not anger, rage. I have no idea where that came from. Nobody ever beat me or raped me or anything as a kid. I just had rage since I can remember. I guess at the injustice of it all. <laughs> and, uh, maybe it was just the decade. And uh, I went to the mental institution twice. This was in Salem, Oregon. This was in, I was on the same ward that Ken Kesey worked on when he wrote Cuckoo's Nest. <laughs> they filmed it that movie on the ward I was in. They filmed that movie on in that ward. I mean, the reason I tell you that is not to brag, but you know, some people went to college. <laughs> this is all I have. <laughs> 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 and I my picture to the sign, you know, and so, smile on <laughs> I spent two and a half years in group therapy at one time. 
I've been to several other therapists and psychiatrists over the years. I've been gestalted and rolled to primal screen. I know more about myself than it's safe to know. But it is my favorite subject. So while I was in this place for 35 days, they made me wear a sign around my neck. I had to make the sign. We made it in crafts. <laughs> a rectangular piece of cardboard with a string that went through it, and it said on there, I am not a counselor. And then they let me out. They let me out. They just let us out. Like we're okay now. Go forth, multiply. Where do we end up? Here. This is it. Alcoholics Anonymous is the world's aftercare program. This is where we are. It's linoleum floors and metal folding chairs for the rest of our natural lives. Party. Do you know there's no referrals from AA? Did you know that? There's no place you go where you walk in and you say, I'm from AA. They sent me here. <laughs> that place doesn't exist. This is, this is the last house on the street. When all the insurance money runs out, they're all done gestalting and rolling and stuff. This is where we end up. This is it. We are the counselors. The inmates are running the asylum. <laughs> Stop and think about this. I've been married three times and people ask me for relationship advice. I give it to them. <laughs> 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 so what's going on here? I mean, you hear a lot of stuff, don't you? You hear a lot of stuff. I think a lot of stuff has come into AA over the years that has really improved it and really helped it. I think in Alcoholics Anonymous these days, 75 years later, we have a much deeper understanding of what alcoholism is. We have a much deeper understanding of the trials and what that is. I think we have a much better understanding of intimacy and relationships, the problems that we have with that, and why. And there's also a lot of stuff that's come into AA, I think, that is really injured and hurt it. I think it will survive any of this. I really believe that. You'll hear a lot of people in AA talk about how we've lost our edge, that we used to have an 850% success rate, now it's minus 34, you know, <laughs> or however they stretch the statistics. I get to travel around in it a lot, do a lot of workshops and different things, and we've even, my sponsor and I put together a, 
a statistical presentation about it. I think Alcoholics Anonymous is alive and well and as effective and as vibrant as it has ever been. I think it's better than it's ever been today, right now, as we sit here. The meetings reflect the culture of AA in any given area. Structuring the meetings is not the solution to weeding out problems. You know? mm-hmm. We can talk about that too. But I think it's alive and well. A lot of the stuff that you hear <coughs> doesn't lend itself to a spiritual program. There's a whole community out there, a whole industry set up that wants us to go back into the past and flesh out the root cause of our problems expose them to the light of day, understand them intellectually, adjust our behavior accordingly, and then everything will be okay. That's not been my experience here. I love that process, because it's all about sitting around talking about me. I mean, I can do that ad nauseum. I'll do it forever. And I'll get you, I'll suck you in and help me do that. You get a whole group. You'd love to have me in your in your support group. You know, I'm I'm real interactive. I pretend to care and everything. <laughs> <laughs> I can fake emotions. And like I told you before, I don't know that I'm faking it. I think I'm really feeling them because I've never felt them, so I really don't know. It seems real. <laughs> I mean, I'll look right at you and hold you in my arms and look you right in the eyes and tell you that I love you with all my heart and believe it and have no concept or any idea what that means at all. And I've never felt it. I feel need. But do I feel love? Do I feel intimacy? You ever had somebody say to you, he's not emotionally available for me? You ever heard that? (laughs) Yeah, there's some laughter of recognition. They stand right in front of you, and they say it many different ways. They say it to us in many different ways. They say, you're not in the same room that I'm in. You don't hear me when I talk to you. You, know, you just nod your head. You know, you just, and we stand and we look at these people that are saying this to us, and, and we think to ourselves, or sometimes we say it out loud, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I'm right here. I come home every day. I'm right here. What are you talking What do you want from me? <laughs> then we write books about you know, men are from Mars and women are from Venus and that. We start talking about how radically different these women are than we are, you know, to justify our inability to connect with other human beings. We write books about how we don't, to make it okay, to rationalize and justify it. We make you crazy so that we'll feel better about ourselves. That's what we do. Well, when they say that to us that we're not emotionally available, what they mean by that is I've got something that they want and I'm withholding it. The truth is worse. I don't have it. And I don't know that I don't have it. You've convinced me that I've got it. And I'm helping you look for it. And this dance is going to go on forever. (laughs) Forever. Now, if you'd like me to be intimate with you, 
And what I mean by that when I use that term, what I'm talking about when I use the term intimacy, what I mean is when I'm capable of feeling what you feel. Not just reacting to how you feel impacts me. But I can actually sense you and feel what you're feeling. That when you're sad, I can feel the sadness. And I'm concerned, genuinely concerned, about why you're sad. Because I sense it from you that there's something wrong. Without you telling me, when I can actually do that, I think that's what you're looking for. If you would like that, now that I'm sober, now that I'm new in AA, if you would like me to really be there for you emotionally, it's going to take about 10 years. And if all I do is go to 875,000 meetings in that 10 years, absolutely nothing will change. It won't even get a little bit better. Nothing will change. If I buy the lie that going to lots of meetings is doing AA, nothing will change. If I buy the lie that there's many different forms of 12-step work, Find what fits for you. If I buy that lie and I only do the things that I'm comfortable with, nothing will change. Nothing. Recovery by its very nature is uncomfortable. And I will never consciously put myself in an uncomfortable position. Why the hell would I do that? I spent my entire life making sure that I'm comfortable. That's what it was all about. Making sure that I felt comfortable creating an artificial emotional environment in myself through the input of chemicals. And now you're going to tell me things like, here's a bad thing in it. Take what you can use and leave the rest. Really? <laughs> you're, going to, you're going to leave that decision up to me with this finely tuned instrument that it brings to you. This emotionally immature kid. No, yeah, take what you can use. Whatever you like, do that. If there's something you don't like, don't do that. We don't want you to be too uncomfortable here in the recovery process. You know? <laughs> the most spiritual thing you'll hear in AA is get in the car. <laughs> What do you care? Get in the car. <laughs> That's what I heard. I lucked out. I found some guys that just get in the car. Matter of fact, they'd look at me and they'd say, go get in your car. <laughs> My sponsor said the reason I was sent to AA is that you guys needed better transportation and I had a better car. So I drove the assault vehicle for years, you know. So here's what I think's going on. The first step says that we're powerless, right? They said that we were powerless over alcohol because they didn't want us to just run screaming down the street. And after 26 years of relatively deep research, I've yet to find anything that I have any power over at all. I think I am utterly, absolutely, completely, totally powerless over absolutely everything. I don't think I have any control or power over anything, any aspect of my life or any other human being or anything that goes on in the world. I have no power. I think in nature, as a human being, I am powerless, and I don't require any power. This is good news. This is good news. Because even if I think I have power, I don't. And therein lies all the suffering in my life, is the belief that I have power, that I need to assert myself, to make stuff happen. If I don't do it, it's not going to happen. And we buy that hook, line, and sinker, don't we? Second place is the first loser. <laughs> that kind of stuff. We buy it. 
100%. We think we should be more than we are. We think we should be more aggressive than we are. All that we should be thinner, we should be cuter, we should be blonde, we should, whatever it is. We should be something other than what we are. And we need to make that happen. We need to carve the shit out of ourselves. <laughs> Scarve ourselves into anorexic beauty. Heroin chic is an actual fashion term. You know that? We buy it 100%. We think we have power. And evidently, my happiness is based upon, my happiness is based upon your behavior. Evidently, because I spent an inordinate amount of time trying to adjust you so that you and I could both be happier. (laughs) And I am just powerless, and all my suffering comes from this. The second half of it, like you look out in nature, I don't see any other creature, anything else that has any power either. And we make judgments about it, don't we? We look out into the world and we determine when something happens, that was good and that was bad. And irrespective of what we determine, it still happens. It still happens. The lion eats the lamb every time. Every single time. And we say, that's unfair. The lion shouldn't eat the cute little lamb. Look at him bleeding and Latin and blood splattered. It's just not right. The lion shouldn't eat the lamb. But he keeps eating the lamb. Irrespective of how much we try to get it to not eat the lamb. So then we make up stories. We make up parables. That there will come a day in the future. Because it isn't right now. But someday, the lion will lay down with the lamb. If that day happens, the lamb's going to be nervous for eternity. <laughs> because it is the nature of the lion to eat the lamb. There's no morality in it. It's not good or bad. It just happens. It's just like that. And we make all these judgments. Therein lies all of our suffering. The second half of the step says our lives became unmanageable. Like there's the illusion at one time it was management. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think my life requires management by me or anybody. I think it just unfolds. I don't think the totality of all things requires any input from me whatsoever for the unfolding to occur. It just happens. I'm just a participant at best. But as human beings, we can't stand that. We want to be char- in charge of the unfolding. We have desires and we latch on to them. And anything that happens that doesn't get us there, we reject it. So the universe, by its very nature being a giving place and supplying us with all we need, we reject it. We somehow think it should be supplying us with something other than what it's supplying us with. And we suffer over that. We try to make stuff happen that isn't happening all the time. We try to work on relationships that require no work. We meet people, we fall in love with them, supposedly, and then we start the process of changing them so that we can have the right person. (laughs) What in God's name is that? Why would we do that to somebody else that we care about? Why? If we can grasp this first step, this powerlessness, just a little bit, just the alcohol and drug thing, just a little bit, it makes the second step operational. We need to align ourselves with some power, whatever's doing the unfolding. 
We need to be restored to sanity. Certainly enough sanity not to drink and use, but also enough sanity to be able to see the powerlessness, to recognize it, to see it, to get it, to stop the struggle. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. <clears throat> if we can grasp that a little bit, if we can say to ourselves, okay, I got that, yeah, I see that, the third step becomes operational. Now, the third step is interesting. What the third step tells us is that we're going to make a decision to turn our life and will over to what already has it anyway. <laughs> I think it was very nice of them to give us a participatory part of the illusion. Okay, I've been withholding myself from the universe up till now. I mean, the alcoholic, the classic arrogant, self-centered position is there's the universe and me. That's impossible. That's not even possible. That's delusionary. I'm not in denial. I'm deluded. I think I'm separate from nature. That's not even possible. So the third step, you know, what life and will is it talking about? The fourth step, the resentments, fears, and broken relationships. The end result of a life lived with seeming power. My happiness is dependent upon your behavior, and you absolutely insist upon living your own life. And that pisses me off at my core. <laughs> this is just not a life of little hatred. This is going on for decades. You know, and I grind on it, grind on it, grind on it. Fear because I have no plan B and this isn't working. <laughs> I hate you and I'm afraid of you at the same time. Broken <laughs> relationships and what I'm a sexless, and what I'm bringing to the table is resentment and fear, what other kind of relationship could I possibly have? <clears throat> They're all dramatic and traumatic, every one of them. It's always big, high drama. Shit flying around the room, <laughs> screaming and yelling, and it's just horrendous. Just horrendous. The fifth step is the ceremony that we go through to complete the third step. You know, I have guys come to me and they say, it's time to do the third step. We're reading the book together, right? It's time to do the third step. And I look at the guy and I say, are you ready to do the third step? And he says, no. And I say, well, why not? He says, because I have a problem with God. Because we're always trying to make God an issue in AA. And it's not. God is not an issue. Who cares about it? It just doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. I don't need to believe in anything. It doesn't require me to believe in anything. Says that very clearly in the book, over and over again. So I look at this guy, he says, I have a problem with God. I look right at him, I go, so do I, let's pray. <laughs> and this stuns him, and the argument stops at that point. And I had a couple of guys actually come back with a retort, and they said, well, I don't even believe in God. And I look right at him, and I go, well, nobody really does, let's pray. <laughs> <laughs> Pray. And we're working this program now. Not mine. We're working this. And these fools say pray. So I'm going to do it. It says to do it. I'm going to do it. Don't argue with you know, Let's pray. 
And when you look at them like that, you tell them you don't believe either. They have nothing to say after that. They'll just kind of get down and pray, and it's painful for them. How, how painful do you think it is for me holding your hand and praying? I'm as embarrassed as you are. I've been doing it longer. So the fifth step is the ceremony that we go through to complete the third step. We literally turn it over. We tell ourselves, another human being, and the manager, here's my stuff, I'm pooped, you take it. <laughs> Six and seven are two paragraphs in the book. You say the prayer and it's over. There's nothing for us to do. We're not re-empowered all of a sudden now. We're going to work on our character defects, right? <laughs> and you can see what the character defects are. They're in the fourth column of the resentment list. It does not say, what was my part? It says, what were my faults and mistakes? Even if I was molested as a child or beaten severely as a child, there's no part in it for me. I was an innocent victim. But if I'm 40 years old and I'm still carrying that resentment around, at the bare minimum, I'm unforgiving. And I'm the one that feels the pain of that, not the perpetrator. I'm the one who feels the pain. And it's about me being rid of that resentment, being rid of that pain, to heal that scar so I can move on with my life. It's not about accepting anything or condoning anything. It's about me being rid of it. Then the manager gives us our first assignment. He says, make amends. I'm going to help you rid yourself of these resentments. And this is the mechanism for ridding ourselves of the resentments as we go and we make amends for our faults and mistakes. We get down, and one of the things you'll hear is you've been your own worst enemy, put yourself at the top of the amends list. That'll pretty much kill you. <laughs> you want to make amends to yourself, you put yourself at the bottom of the list. By the time you get there, you'll have some self-esteem. The other thing you hear is you got to learn to love yourself before you can love others. <laughs> and if I wait around to love me to get to you, I'll never get to you. <laughs> all my life. Alcoholics Anonymous says I am relieved of the bondage of self. It's over. I don't have to work on me anymore. It's over. Thank God. It's over. All I need to know about my childhood is it's over. <laughs> and it was it.
part of this. I'm part of the instrument of God's will. The 10th step is a continuing inventory process. If what happened to me in March of 1985 as I was awakened, because I believe that's what happens to us, we wake up. Where I sat with an Indian guru one time, and I'm talking to him, me and another guy were just sitting there, this guy was giving some talks, and uh, he start, I'm talking away like I do, and he starts laughing at me. I go, what are you laughing at? He goes, I just love you alcoholics and drug addicts. I said, why? He said, the rest of them out there are trying to get awakened. You're just trying to figure out what the hell happened. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that true? We woke up. We were awakened. The rest of the journey is to take that awakening and turn it into some kind of an awareness where I'm aware that I'm awake. And maybe there's something I can do with this. Maybe there's a reason for this. Maybe there's a job for me. Maybe there's something. Maybe I have a purpose in my life that underpins everything else that goes on in my life. Maybe there's a deeper meaning here. Maybe I can be led. Maybe if I just pay attention, maybe I can help some other people. Maybe something will come from this awakening of mine. And the next step is all about that. There's a difference between self-obsession and self-awareness. In the tenth step, we watch ourselves move through life. We review the day. It's the continuing inventory process. It's like paying attention, being mindful, be awake. Pay attention. Great Zen saying, when you're doing the dishes, do the dishes. <laughs> when we're alive now, if we're in the present moment, we're paying attention to what's happening right now. Right here, right now. That's all there is. The eleventh step is about sucking up to the manager. <laughs> it would behoove us to get close to whatever saved our lives. Meditation is not extra credit. <laughs> you got to do it. And let me tell you one of the benefits, one of the major benefits of, of meditation. In meditation, I close my eyes, I watch my breath, and my mind wanders. When it wanders, I catch it, and I bring it back to the breath. Who's catching it? Who's doing the catching? I come to understand at depth, through experience, that I am not my thinking mind. That's a game changer. That changes everything. I don't have to change this thing. I don't have to analyze it. I don't have to do battle with it. I can simply ignore it. It is not me. It's not even real. It doesn't, it creates nothing. It just takes credit for shit. <laughs> it's very flat and two-dimensional. It, it is not creative at all. It just takes the past and it projects it into the future. That's all it does. They were looking for you then. They're going to be looking for you tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, it's that kind of stuff. That's all it does. And we say stuff around here. See, my head's out to get me. We talk about it in the third person. I don't think it's out to get us. Why would it kill the host? I think it's trying to help. It's just stupid. It doesn't get it. It thinks it's me. It's as deluded as I am. We're in this together. It gets me thinking about it all the time. So in the 11th step, it changes everything. The 12th step is where it all comes home. The 12th step is where it all happens. 
It's where the change occurs. It's where the psychic change happens. It's where I change. It's where everything changes. It's where we confront our defects of character. If you open your heart to the work, which is sponsoring people, it's the only job there is in AA. There is no other job. There's nothing else to do here. There isn't 47 different kinds of 12-step work. There's lots of ways that we can be active, but there's only one way that we really take the action. Sitting alone in a room with another alcoholic, reading the book, sharing our lives together. This is how we learn intimacy. This is how we develop compassion. The greatest weakness that I have within me are the aspects of my nature that have never developed. Not the parts that don't work well. Those are obvious. The arrogance, the egomaniacal stuff, the violence, all that stuff. You can see, you can pick those out. What about the stuff that's missing? What about the stuff I never learned? What's going to happen is I'm going to have a series of experiences that cause me to grow up. If you open your heart to the work, if you don't believe the lie that you can do other things, if you don't believe the lie that you, you don't have time to do this, or the big one, I have nothing to offer. That isn't what I do. I've actually heard people say, well, my form of 12-step work is I sit in the same chair in the same meeting all the time so people will feel comfortable when they come into the room. Kill yourself now. You're never going to be humble by pretending to be humble. It doesn't work like that. Jimmy Wolf said, you'll never find peace through avoiding life. This is Alcoholics Anonymous. Recovery is uncomfortable. Get uncomfortable. I'm still uncomfortable after 26 years. I'm just used to it. I know it won't kill me. I know that I'll be okay now when I get in the car. I know that I'm going to have a new experience. If you open your heart to this work, whatever prejudice you have will walk across the room and ask you for help. And now you have a decision to make. If you want to hang on to your opinion and your prejudice, send it away. I used to stand up here at these podiums and I said, if you were on medication, you weren't sober. I didn't really know anything about that, but I don't require any knowledge to really come up with an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I heard some of you say that, and it seemed like a real right-wing, badass opinion to have. So I just picked it up because it made me look good. You know, and so I was really actively involved in making a name for myself in an anonymous organization. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but it's very strange. Very painful, also very painful. So this guy walked across the room and he asked me to help him. He says, I think you should know that I'm bipolar and I'm on medication. Two rules. Always answer the phone. Get rid of caller ID. Have faith that whoever is calling you is supposed to be in your life. Quit controlling the experience. Have faith. Have faith that it's going to be okay. Rule number two. Never say no. Ever. Have faith that whatever you're being asked to do is where you're supposed to be. How do you suppose the manager communicates with us? When I get on my knees and ask for help, he sends me you. He sends me you. I cannot recover without you. You're an integral part of my recovery. That hole that we were all trying to fill all the time, that hole we talk about that the wind blows through, you know what was missing? You. You. I was never connected to you. I couldn't feel you, and I didn't know it. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, I found you. 
You filled the hole. Do you piss me off? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but the love that I felt is indescribable. I mean, the compassion, all of it is indescribable. Is there pain with it? Absolutely. Yes, there is. It's life. It's called life. So I said yes to this guy, and I started reading the book with him, and I had the experience of peeling him off the ceiling and lifting him up off the floor. One time he came across my living room, a 40-year-old grown man. He curled up in my lap with his head in my neck and cried like a baby, and I just stood held him and rocked. My wife walked through the living room and went, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> That'll get your attention. <laughs> People have demons that I don't have. And evidently what I think, if I don't have it and you have it, I think you're faking it or something. I don't know what that's about. But I've learned differently. People have demons I don't have. Now when I see that guy coming, I go, have you taken your medication? <laughs> so I had an opinion, then I had an experience that changed my opinion. That's how it works. And if I don't interact with you, it will never happen. If I'm not alone with you, it will never happen. If all I'm doing is flipping hamburgers at the Labor Day picnic, it will never happen. I will never have the experience. And I'll never know that I missed it. I'll be absolutely clueless. And I'll get envious and pissed off at the people that seem to have peace in their life. Have you seen those guys in AA? There are a lot of them. There's a lot of them. Stuff never happens. Guy came up to me and asked me to sponsor me. He says, I think you should know that I'm gay. And I said, Wouldn't you rather have a gay sponsor? And he said, No. He says, I don't have a problem being gay, but drinking is an issue. Who knew? You'll hear people say, You gotta give it away to keep it. No. You have to give it away to even get it. If you're not giving it away, you don't have to. Thank you very much.